If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 747. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Why are you there? Give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that. And, of course, you can purchase one or 20 classes there. Right now, I still have that Black Friday deal, but it is ending very, very soon. I mean, really, really soon as you're getting this podcast. So you're going to want to pick it up. You want to get that deal because it's 30% off, and it's not going to last much longer. I extended it out a little bit longer because there was a little bit of lag, and some people get the emails late, but... You want to use that Black Friday 2022 coupon code to get the classes 30% off. Or get on the email list and you get the links. That's the best way to do it. You can also support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com. Click on the support tab. You can click on the heart button under this video if you're watching on YouTube. You can also go to anchor.fm and subscribe there. But of course, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review at Apple Podcasts. Comment on it on YouTube. Share it around on social media. That is how people find the show and they listen to it. I love organic growth. It's the best kind of growth because you get people engaged right away. And I appreciate all your support. As I mentioned before, we've got coming up, and I mean, McClanahan Academy, or I'm sorry, a Brian McClanahan Show. <laughs> I'm thinking McClanahan Academy. Brian McClanahan Show will be wrapping up for 2022 at the end of next week. So, not a lot of time left. I have, uh, what, five episodes left after this one. And we are going to have a number of listener-generated episodes next week. In fact, it depends on what happens for tomorrow. I think I might have a special guest tomorrow, so that would mean that all next week will be listener-generated episodes. But if not, I'll have one listener-generated episode tomorrow, and then next week I'll have the special guest. I don't normally do interviews, but I'm going to do one because you're going to want to get what this person is offering. So... That's coming up either tomorrow or next week, uh, early next week. And uh, again, you're going to want to hear this interview. So uh, we've got a really great show today. This is actually kind of a listener-generated episode because it was sent to me by uh, a friend and colleague, but also um, as a way to have something to talk about on a podcast. And it's an issue that um, I've discussed before in some ways, but really uh, people are starting to think about this particular topic uh, more carefully and critically now than they have in a long time. And of course, I'm talking about secession and a second American Civil War. Now, there are different scenarios as this email gets into that I could see some of these things happening. I'll say this, from the beginning, and, and look, I'm going back 20 years on this. It was always thought that if there was going to be a secession movement, it had to come from New England or, say, California. It had to be in an area that was dominated by the left. And that's generally because the people that would be opposed to it would be 
fewer. And, and I mean that. Now, we've got the Lincoln effect. We've got Lincolnian nationalism. We have people, even in the Republican Party, even among conservatives, that firmly believe that the union is this big and it's these states and it's indissoluble and you can't get rid of it. And so secession's illegal. You have a lot of these people. And I'm not so certain any president, any president, would allow a secession movement to take place in America now without some type of pushback. Now, as this piece discusses, Republican presidents were probably less inclined to push back with force than a Democrat president. I think that's 100% accurate. And this is where you know, Thomas Naylor, who was the leader of what was called the Second Vermont Republic, he died uh, several years ago. Thomas Naylor, uh, I heard him give a speech in 2010 where he said, look, I mean, we hope that we can we can get out and we'll just you know, pull up the drawbridges and hope that they don't invade. New England and California have something different from, say, Alabama or Mississippi. And that is they've done nothing wrong ever. I mean, they've never, they're pure as a driven snow. And I've said this on this podcast before. I think that if any independence movement takes place in America... That would be it. It has to come from a place like that. It has to be in a, in a place that is dominated by the left. And Naylor was a leftist. Now, he wrote a little book on secession uh, just before he died. And I can't remember the exact year he died. Uh, but it was a neat little book, and he sent it to me. Uh, this was probably about, again, 2011, maybe, that he sent me the book. And I, again, I can't remember the year that he died. But he's been dead for a pretty long time. Then you have people like Kirkpatrick Sale, who uh, is the head of the Middlebury Institute. And Sale is also, or at least at one time, was a pretty committed leftist. And he's always been interested in, in decentralization. Um, he's written a number of, of interesting books on the topic. He's always talked about the size of, of states and size matters. And you can have very prosperous, powerful, economically powerful states that don't have to be large. And he gives you a number of examples. The United States doesn't have to be 320 million people to have a vibrant economy. And the states don't have to be part of a union that they don't agree with in order to maintain their independence and have a vibrant economy. It just doesn't have to happen that way. And so he's long been an advocate of political decentralization because of that, because he thinks that this would work just fine with a decentralized federal republic or multiple federal republics, or multiple independent states. But how would it happen? I mean, are we, are we on the path for a war? I don't think so. I don't think so at all, um, because I don't think Americans would stomach that in any way. I just don't think it would, it would be the case. And I'm not so certain there would be a whole lot of pushback if any entity of the U.S. government would use some type of force to compel a state to stay in the Union. I, I don't think many people would blink an eye at it because of the Lincoln myth. They would say, well, this is something that should happen, right? I mean, uh, we, we've fought a war over independence. We fought a war over secession. It's illegal. And I've again, I've talked about secession on this program many, many times and how my position on it, how I don't think it's illegal. But practical is another question. Can it happen is a whole other question. You can have a legal issue and then you can have a practical issue. And it's two different things. At this point in American history, I'm not so certain anybody's ready for this kind of thing. And um, even though people will talk about it, I'm not sure if they've really thought about this much more deeply than, I don't like those people over there and I don't want to be around them. Well, this, of course, is where 
real federalism, you know, a federal republic, think locally, act locally, does play a role in that. Of course, also nullification. is Nullification and secession are two entirely different things. If you're pursuing nullification, you're looking to stay in the union. You're looking to maintain the federal republic because you're telling the general government that you only have certain powers that we agree with, and we're not going to let you have powers that are unconstitutional. So it's, it's a, it is a union-saving mechanism. It's how Calhoun sold it. And people like Nathaniel Macon in the, uh, in the early 19th century said nullification was a bad idea because if you don't like the union, just leave. In other words, he recognized nullification keeps the union together. So that's a whole other thing. But I mean, all of these discussions that we're having about whether it's nullification, whether it's real federalism, whether it's secession, all of that, the role of governors, the role of local legislatures, the role of the states, all of this stuff is really important because, say, 30 years ago, nobody was talking about this stuff. So in 30 years, we've seen a major transformation in the United States and the impact that discussions like that have had on the American polity. And the fact that people are now talking about national divorce and uh, these kind of things much more openly is, I think, a sign of the times. And I do think that younger people are maybe more receptive to this than any other generation of Americans. And part of that is the filtering through the World War II generation. The World War II generation, of course, is was very nationalistic. Uh, they were much more reconciliationist than any generation that we currently have. Uh, the baby boomer generation depends on where you are and who you are in that generation. There are people that certainly believe in reconciliation, uh, but there are a lot of people that are pretty authoritarian in that generation, much more so than than the previous generation before them. And so that generation, though, is now getting into their 70s and, uh, and, and 80s. I mean, they're getting up there in age. So that generation will filter through. And then you get to Gen Xers. You get to Gen Xers and you get to millennials who are now, millennials are hitting 40. I mean, they're getting into their 40s, middle age now. And so where does that, I mean, how do these people think about things? Uh, which, again, I find fascinating. And then, of course, you have the, the Generation Z. and the So Gen Xers, my generation, I think is much more receptive to this kind of thing than just about any other generation in, in the last 100 years. I really do. I think that Gen Xers are more interested in live and let live than just about any other generation. Now, it doesn't mean they're all, they all are. I mean, you find some pretty wacko people in my generation, my age, who say some really stupid and, and, and just, I mean, psychotic things. But at the end of the day, I think this generation of people is much more receptive to that kind of thing than any other generation. So let me get into this uh, article that was sent to me. The title is uh, how the Next Civil War Begins, and it's by B. Duncan uh, uh, Mensch. And um, it's pretty interesting. And he talks to Frank Buckley in this. He, he did an interview with him a little while ago and talks about Frank Buckley's position on how this would happen. And um, Buckley, I think, is right about some things and how this would work out. Uh, he wrote a, a really interesting book on secession that I've talked about on this podcast before. And, of course, he is friends with, uh, with Don Livingston. And Don Livingston is one of the most important philosophers when it comes to secession and decentralization in the United States. And, uh, I mean, you, if you want to know about any of those topics, you need to, you need to follow Don. 
But I'm gonna I'm gonna go through this piece. It's it's again pretty interesting. He says all national declines ebb and flow. The street violence and chaos of the summer of 2020 marked the moment the curtain was pulled back. The country's two true psychic state revealed for a single season before the curtain fell once more. President Biden entered office. The pandemic subsided. Normalcy seemed to return. In the two years since that summer, I've considered the specific series of events that might trigger our final national fragmentation, often in tablet. And it now seems clear to me that America's demise will be inaugurated by what has become our country's pastime, a contested election. In two years from now, both parties will declare themselves the electoral victor, with neither presidential candidate conceding defeat. State electors will ratify two different presidents according to their preferred narrative or conspiracy theory. The country will then fracture legally and institutionally along red and blue lines. Now, I'm not necessarily, I don't think that's going to happen. And I've talked about DeSantis. Um, I think there are going to be people that are questioning the 2020 election, either Democrat or Republican. If, if whoever wins the 2024 election is, is going to be contested by the other party, it doesn't matter, again, if, if we get uh, President Trump or President Biden or President DeSantis or President you know, Newsom, whatever it is, whatever happens, the other side is going to contest it. And that's because we've got so much suspicion in border and battleground border states about how they run their elections that I don't think anybody's ever going to think we have a clean election again. I do think that 2016 and 2020 really created that. Now, he gets into the 2000 election. But we've had, you know, uh, chaos and, of course, corruption elections before. It's just we didn't have the kind of media that we have now and all the little videos and everything else that people get on in social media. And they can see these things. We haven't had that before. We haven't had a situation where we've got the establishment openly changing the narrative as they go. And people see it, and yet and they get called out for it, and yet they'll blink an eye at it. We, we know it. The, the, the narrative changes constantly. Uh, so the official narrative is never really that official and because they can, they can change it and make it whatever they want. And the media, of course, is complicit in all of this. This is what Musk is talking about with Twitter, how you have independent journalist media that will question things. That's the most important thing journalists could ever do is question things. Journalism, one of the key tenets of journalism is supposed to be questioning power, whether it's political power, monetary power, it's questioning power and looking for the truth behind the curtain. What is really going on here? So uh, we see a lot more of that, whether on the left or the right, and people trying to do this, which is interesting. And this is what, this is what social media is really supposed to do. Um, and people use it terrible ways, but that's really what it's supposed to do. So he continues, according to recent polling, more than 50% of Americans expect a new civil war in the next couple of years. It's a pathetic scenario more fitting to, for a semi-authoritarian backwater than the world's beacon of democracy. National breakup efforts will be coming, and if we're being honest, they're behind schedule. So th this author thinks that we should have had a national breakup, a divorce, long before this. Now again, there's the legacy of the war that factors into that. When the South lost, they wanted to be readmitted to the Union. They wanted to be part of this. This is reconciliation. They wanted to show they were good, loyal Americans in 1898, the Spanish-American War, and 
1917 and World War I. They really wanted to show their mettle, that Southerners were part of this. And they got behind your rally around the flag and show you're a true American and shake hands with the Union. They got behind the stuff. Of course, they wanted to keep the regional identities, and this is why they put up Confederate monuments and really tried to promote a Southern narrative of of themselves, right? Not let the North write their history for them. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and uh, th- this is, of course, blasted today, but this is very important. The South wanted to be part of this Union, though. I mean, you used to see, even when I was growing up, you know, it was a U.S. flag and a Confederate flag. You know, Amer- uh, you know um, American by birth, but Southern by the grace of God. Is you know you see that 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 thing uh, that symbol out there, and so it was always putting the two together. Now you're not seeing it as much, and part of that is because you've got I think a very aggressive left that people are becoming disgusted by, and the left would say we have a very aggressive right. I mean when you have. Uh, Lefties go on television and say the greatest threat to America is you know MAGA people, right? It's the it's the Republican Party. It's these populists, these Make America Great Again people. They're the greatest threat to America. They're the greatest terrorists out there. I mean, where do we go from there? And of course, this is what was happening in the 1850s when you had both sides doing that kind of thing as well. So I don't know if we're going to see a war again. I don't think we're going to see a hot war ever. Unless the scenario plays out like Buckley says, which I could, I mean, possibly see, but I don't know if people have a stomach for it. And I, and I think, in some ways, America is just going to kind of lose its legitimacy. We're already seeing it. The, the presidency is losing its legitimacy. The general government is. I mean, people are laughing at it now. They're looking at all the stuff and they're just laughing. Uh, you know, Alex Stein, ninety-nine. The, one of the f- best things he does is show how absolutely silly and ludicrous all of these people are in Washington, D.C. And they are. I mean, look, most of the people in D.C. shouldn't even be there. They're not even the best people in society. They're, most of them are just worthless, um, stupid, corrupt, just awful people. But these are the people we have to choose. And, of course, we know that they're all influenced by money and everything else. There's so much corruption there, whether it's the deep state, whether it's people with deep pockets, whatever it is. There's so much corruption there. So how do you reform this? Well, it has to come from the bottom up, and it has to come from the states and the local governments and these kind of things, and you have to work that way. And I think that people, as more people see that, they're just going to do it and start ignoring what the center does. That would be the peaceful thing to do. But let me continue with the piece. Since 2000, the U.S. has witnessed three contested presidential elections, with one side labeling the results illegitimate. In 2000's Bush v. Gore, the Supreme Court shut down vote recounts and delivered the election to the son of a former president, a man whose family at various points maintained that the 1992 election itself was stolen by the quarrelous Ross Perot and the meddling liberal media. Of course, what's interesting about the 92 election is that you know Perot did pull votes away from, from H.W. Uh, Bush, but also from Bill Clinton. Perot was saying things that Donald Trump was saying in 2016, or Pat Buchanan was saying in '92, and uh, he was—I mean—he was channeling kind of this old, in in many ways, Southern. I talked about this yesterday with Pat Buchanan. This kind of old Southern view on what America should be—that's what he was doing. The appointment of President George W. Bush, grandchild of Prescott Bush, who took part in the business plot, the bumbling coup d'état attempt against Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s 
led the country into two disastrous Middle Eastern wars, one being based on fraudulent premises. In his final year in office, Bush stood at the helm while the U.S. banking system collapsed, causing the country's most significant economic downturn since the Great Depression. In the next election, the U.S. electorate pinned their hopes on Barack Obama, the skinny junior Illinois senator promising to lead the country past the triune plagues of Wall Street greed, racial animus, and Middle Eastern wars. Amid more puff pieces about the beauty of the presidential family than occurred during John Kennedy's presidential tenure, Obama lost the 2010 midterms. Six years later, the former first lady, Hillary Clinton, who everyone in, the, in elite media penciled in as her next queen, deepened the Democrats' failures by taking electoral losses throughout the Rust Belt region far worse than Al Gore's 2000 campaign. Instead of admitting fault for their losing campaign strategy, Democratic Party apparatchiks and their allies in the legacy media became full-time election denialists. The news operations that made billions airing Trump's every idiotic word in the lead-up to the 2016 election accepted no responsibility for his eventual victory. Neither did the Democrats, Democrat Party establishment, who all but rigged their own primary process in favor of one of the least popular political figures in American history. The Democratic Party leadership and journalism class did nothing wrong. We were repeatedly informed. It was Vladimir Putin and the Russians who were actually to blame. They hacked the election. Again, we forget about this. I mean, I like that he brought this up, but as the 2020 election came and went, and you had Trump denying that he actually lost, just four years before that, the Clinton campaign did the exact same thing. And we do, in 2000, there were certainly denials that George W. Bush was even a legitimate president. There were people calling Donald Trump an illegitimate president for four years. And so when Trump does it and the Republicans say, we don't believe Joe Biden's election victory, well, you're just election deniers. This is something Kari Lake did very well in Arizona. It just didn't, I guess, gain enough traction. But she pointed out how idiotic these journalists were, how corrupt they are, how biased they are. Pointed it out because it's true. The establishment journalist class are some of the worst people in America. They're not held accountable for anything. And I think this is correct. There's no accountability anymore at all. He's going to say it in a second. There's no accountability. Heading into the 2020 election, COVID-19 crash would have been a not quite as disastrous as anticipated 45th U.S. presidency for Donald Trump. By embracing both the COVID lockdowns and a minuscule relief package that did not tie employees to their jobs, Trump tanked any realistic chance of winning a second term. But instead of admitting his own errors, Trump, like the Bushes, the Gores, and the Clintons before him, blamed everybody else. Predictably, Trump claimed that he, his defeat was a fraud. The election, you see, was stolen. Sound familiar? Within a matter of weeks, Stop the Steal became the mantra of the Republican Party. All who refused to abide by its claims were run out of the MAGA camp as traitors, or worse. Bringing us to the present. When no one in leadership takes responsibility for anything... Not America's military generals, nor its public health officials, and least of all its president. Scapegoating and conspiracy accusations are the norm. Both the left and right view instigating mass hysteria as a legitimate political tool, not only for career advancement, but also institutional takeover. Where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? Is the question. I think that's a good that's a good question. And again, I the chaos is something from a decentralist standpoint in D.C. you want. and not, not violent chaos, but you want people to stop thinking that the center has so much power or so much authority or, or so much legal precedent. They don't. 
That, again, is the dirty little secret. They don't. He says, entire nations can go insane. Here's a way to test if we're headed that way. Watch five minutes of TikTok. Anything related to politics, beauty tips, or social justice. Follow that up with five minutes of MSNBC, then the same amount of Fox News. Next, read a chapter of Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility. Any chapter. Lastly, carefully scan some QAnon Reddit posts. Immediately after doing all this, take a shower and then ask yourself, is America political culture not in the throes of degenerate madness? Well, this is a byproduct of democracy. I mean, look, social media has democratized things in a way that nothing else in American history ever could. Because you've got people that are really stupid with a voice. And, I mean, this is something that (laughs) is happening because they have a camera and a microphone. And they have a phone. I mean, they can just get on a phone and do something. You've got people that have no business really having um, a say in how things go, having a say in how things go. That that's a that's a dangerous recipe long term. This is why you know democracy is always is always going to facilitate the lowest common denominator. It happens. This is why the Marxists love it. You've got the cream going to the bottom and the bottom rising to the top. It happens all the time. And some of these things are funny. I mean, look, some of the stuff that you see, these videos and everything else are funny. But um, there was a a good video the other day that I watched on Walk, Don't Run Productions. The guy's pretty funny at times. But he did one on this uh, Political Girl channel. I guess she's on TikTok or something. She's a, As he says, she's not a girl. She's a 48-year-old woman who calls herself Political Girl. And her videos are just absolutely stupid. Um, I've commented on them a couple of times, but uh, when they've come through, you know, social media feed or something, they're just absolutely ridiculously stupid. But I mean, he says, you know, this is as as you watch that, you have to realize these people are out there, and she has a camera, and she has a microphone, and she can go on and and rant uh, in a way that is really annoying, but also uh, that's completely stupid as he points out in the video over and over again, which is hilarious. But these are the people that are driving opinion. She's got a lot of of viewers, I guess, and you have others out there that have a lot of viewers that are dumb as bricks, but yet they are in a position of power because they have a voice. And look, you can find this on the left and the right. It's not just on the left. It's on the left and the right. He says, might the seemingly stable present be attributable to the fact that we remain too rich, militarily impenetrable, and geographically insulated to face the full consequences of our psychological derangement? Well, I think so. I mean, we're decadent now, and nobody really wants to face the results of a decentralist movement. It would be nasty in a lot of ways. You're going to have, you're going to have currency instability. Going to have supplies be unstable. I mean, this is really bad stuff. There's, there's almost no way of doing it though without some of these, some of these disruptions, and that's what people aren't going to tolerate. I look, you go through COVID, and I think COVID did a lot of people in on what they would tolerate. They're not going to tolerate not being able to get their stuff from Amazon. They're not going to tolerate having any type of isolation or shutdowns. They just don't want to do it anymore. And some type of political instability would lead to the exact same thing. And of course, the United States having two oceans separating it from Europe and Asia 
has always been a benefit because it's very hard to invade the United States. That's not going to change. So that geographic insulation is going to be a, a part of this. He says, once a political culture embraces the path of the dark triad, narcissism, Machiavellianism, and, psych and psychopathy, negative end products are not simply possible, but inevitable. There's only one chance to stave off the worst political potential outcome in the United States, reorganize our 50-state partnership as a failed marriage, and like adults, move on. Here's how it could look. So he's saying there's only one way to stop this, and it's decentralization. Again, I agree. How does that decentralization work? is what he's going to get into here, what he thinks decentralization could look like. California, parts of Oregon, Washington, and Nevada agree to become one new federal system but keep their independent statehoods and legislative bodies. Intact Utah, Idaho, Arizona, New Mexico, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and the Dakotas do the same. The Rust Belt states, including, let's suppose, a separated western Pennsylvania, forge together as another similar regional governance agreement. Connecticut, Massachusetts, and the rest of New England become other, another confederation of nation-states. Upstate New York, Vermont, Maine, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and eastern Pennsylvania join it, or perhaps Canada, would like a few, more, a few new wealthy provinces. The five boroughs of New York City should probably be given unique status inside this new New England, similar to Scotland's place inside the United Kingdom, a distinct parliament, and some separate form of micro-nationhood. Down south, the former Civil War border states of Maryland, Delaware, West Virginia, Kentucky, and Missouri can collaborate in a new state, state partnership. Similarly, the 11 states of the former Confederacy joined together once more, minus Texas, who we all know, because they remind us incessantly, has been counting the days until it can declare full independence again. Alaska and Hawaii are beautiful and luxurious places. They'll easily find a home in one of these new state partnerships. Or they could just be independent. I mean, why can't Hawaii or Alaska? I mean, I would ask him, why can't they just be independent countries like Texas? Of course they could. Puerto Rico, America's long-suffering, neglected stepchild, might seek independence, which is increasingly popular with its own citizens. In 2020, the Puerto Rican Independence Party picked up 13.6% of the vote compared to just 2.1% in 2016. And then you have an anti-colonial party that also garnered 14% of the vote, which meant a full, as he says, a full quarter of the territory is ready to cut ties with the United States. This next line is important. There's nothing sacred about 50-state America. There really isn't anything sacred about it. We've only had 50-state America for about 70 years. There's really nothing sacred about the idea that we have to have 50 states. We had a much smaller America throughout American history. We had America that just was locked onto the eastern seaboard. We've had Americas that moved west. We've had less than 50 states many, for most of American history. And so there's really nothing sacred about it. It could be altered, changed. Now, and I'll take my stand. Uh, there was some talk about regional governance. You have a regional. You keep the United States together, but you have, you have another layer, almost like a third layer of government between the states and the general government that would be these regional governments. I don't know if we need another layer of government. But that was also, could we not have a southern regional government, a New England regional government, a western regional government? Could we have these regional governments that have a little more say uh, in how things run from a top-down standpoint that would put these areas together? And then, of course, there would be another level of government for just general purposes beyond that. That's another possibility that you could look at. We should be having these discussions all the time. There shouldn't be a sacred union. Now... I say that because Abraham Lincoln certainly wanted that, and that's the way he looked at the United States. He looked at it as almost like a religion. It was a quasi-religious experience 
to believe in the U.S. government. He talked about it in the 1830s with his Lyceum Address. If you take my Reading Abraham Lincoln class at McClanahan Academy, I talk about that. But his Lyceum Address was so important because that Lyceum Address outlined how we could have a secular American religion revolving around government. And that's what we have, right? I mean, the Declaration has become, as Pauline Meyer points out, American scripture. It is seen as a sacred document. And Congress now is a sacred place. We've had the Democrats use that very term, a term that was only reserved for religious sites and religious artifacts, not a document of independence or a place of politics. So, I mean, this is, this is where you know, this, uh, this idea that we have a sacred government is just completely silly. He says, breaking up the country into six or seven new semi-autonomous state partnerships won't solve all or even most of our political or cultural problems. It should, however, end the insane and unwinnable culture wars over the national identity of a country that was never intended to have a massive, top-down, one-size-fits-all solution for how its citizens should live. This is true. America was founded to allow, to allow local experiments and democracy to flourish within regional cultures. Again, another true statement. That tradition has been destroyed by a ruling class made up of people who were all educated at the same schools and taught to believe that technocratic solutions were the answer to every problem. Corporations and federal surveillance bureaucracies may object to a national breakup on the grounds that it would make their jobs harder, but why should ordinary Americans feel the same way? Again, he's exactly right about what America was originally founded as. I mean, it was a federal republic, and if you look at people like Tench Cox, and then, I mean, I could go down the line. This is the originalist papers class at McClanahan Academy. All the people arguing that all these issues, the culture war issues, would be handled at the state and local level. This is not the purview of the federal government, but they've all been taught the Lincoln myth. And he says it in the next, next paragraph. How much of America's present dysfunction is a result of Abraham Lincoln's 1861 choice to forcibly keep together two regional cultures that detest each other? Few comparable civil wars exist in world history where one side vanquishes and humiliates the other, and then the two sides stay together peacefully, but teeming with unresolved resentment for more than a century and a half. This is true. I mean, and so this is where you're seeing the, the culture war take place and tear down Confederate monuments and all these kinds of things. It's the North, simply, it's Northerners simply saying, um, or Lincolnians, we don't want your stuff around anymore. Like it or not, the United States is poised to balkanize at some point. If anything, sustained independence movements are overdue. The 21st century ascent of the critical race and gender as a social construct ideologies might not actually represent an effort to dismantle a hegemonic white patriarchy as claimed. A better way to understand the tremendous popularity of woke thought among the bureaucratic class could be as an unconscious attempt to create the moral economy needed to forcibly keep the union together a second time. For if the red state voters and rural Americans are merely dens of deplorable racist fascists, then there's simply no choice but deny them democratic independence when they inevitably ask for it. Again, I agree with this that point 100%. It is a new kind of moral crusade that would say, say in the 1850s, if Southerners wanted their independence, there's no way you can allow a, a immoral devil people self-determination. It just can't happen. These people are all awful. And they have to be disposed of. It's creating a new political, moral crusade. And that is uh, that is the real problem here. 
He says, since I started writing about this topic of national breakup two years ago, I mean, again, some of us have been talking about this for 20 years, but the concept of a second U.S. Civil War has become presque vu across much of the American media landscape. The round-faced YouTuber Tim Pool has made a living posting daily videos on the topic. With his head hovering at the, in the bottom right corner of the screen, Pool displays the day's news. After reading a few lines, Pool will then sigh, pause for dramatic effect, and offer commentary that nearly without fail contains the phrase, I tell you what, and some reference to the notion of a second civil war. Tim Pool has become, I mean, he's very, very popular, right? Uh, and he's talked about this a lot, and a lot of other kind of, you know, gen Generation Z people and a little bit older than that have picked up on it. Uh, again, some of us have been talking about this for a very long time. We just didn't have the same kind of profile and shock value of Tim Pool. My YouTube algorithm pairs Pool's videos with advertisements for bulletproof vests, tactical knives, and other self-defense paraphernalia. Prepare yourself, Nancy boy. YouTube whispers in my ear. The zombies are coming. So then he says he called on F.H. Buckley, a foundation professor of law at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University, and he says he outlined his predictions for America's end. And so they discussed their breakup possibilities. Scenario A, he says, is the Buchanan. It's named after President James Buchanan's apathy towards the South's independence efforts. In this scenario, Trump or any other Republican occupies the White House when Californians set in motion a serious move toward Cal-Exit. According to Buckley, the Republican president responds by saying goodbye and good luck. Now, I, again, I'm not so certain. It, de it depends on who the Republican is. If it's Bill Bennett-like, well, that's not going to happen. They're going to fight to keep California in the union. And it depends on what the financial ramifications of all this would be. There's a lot of money tied into this. These are things that we just don't comprehend and how all these things are tied in together. All the interlocking, incestuous things that happen with government and, of course, big business and how much big business is in California and what that would do for bottom lines of people. The Republican Party would be sensible. That, and, of course, you have you know, Victor Davis Hanson. If Victor Davis Hanson has his way, all those lefties in California would be lined up and executed for pushing for California secession. That's illegal. So it doesn't matter. I, look, I think this is a little naive that the Republican Party would somehow be on board with this. The Republican Party isn't. Now, generally, Americans on the right are much more tolerant of this kind of thing. But you're talking about the political class now, which is an entirely different monster. Scenario B, the Lincoln, named after Lincoln's inexorable campaign to keep the union together by force. Under a Democratic chief executive, including a Biden second term, red states launch independence movements. Buckley believes this is where the true danger lies. The question is which party is prepared to invade and occupy the territory of another part of the country, he asks. Rhetorically, if the Democrats, he goes on, wouldn't hesitate to make war on the Republican parts of America. Um, and again, maybe that's true. Here, here it, it comes down to this, though. What area doesn't have any kind of skeletons in his closet? The South would simply be doing this, as he pointed out earlier on the piece, because these people are evil. They're the deplorables. We have backward views on everything. We cannot allow these kind of people to have independence. We can't allow these people political decentralization. It just can't happen. So he says, I share with Buckley that I live in a solidly middle-class neighborhood in North, Flor North Central Florida. Roughly 30 to 35% of my neighbors are African-American. On the road directly in front of my house, kids ride their motocross bikes wearing cowboy boots and unironic mullets. On the same road, I've heard uh, I've heard Mandarin spoke by neighbors walking by with their children. 
However, when, they, when November rolls around and lawn signs go up, most of them plug Trump, Ron DeSantis, or other GOP candidates. There are plenty of Biden signs too, but I've never witnessed any consternation and certainly no ethnic animosity. Mixed race couples are common to the degree that they're unremarkable, as aligns with demographer Richard Alba's recent research on the expanding American mainstream. He then says, The ironic thing is that American conservatives are the tolerant people here, Buckley says. I'm from Quebec and lived through a real secession debate. There was never such animosity between English and French Quebec as there is between conservatives and liberals in America. There is such a degree of deep-seated contempt and widespread fantasies of what life would be like without the other side around. Seeing here he is in Quebec. Now, if you don't know, Quebec had a pretty substantial secession movement in the 1990s. It almost happened. And you had these very pompous Canadian Brits you know, from the old British... How do these people really think they can have their own independence? Are they really that smart? You know, and so you had that. But it almost happened. Quebec independence almost happened. And that might have been a shockwave for the world because this is a, a, a place that is very stable. Canada is a very stable government. And you had this ethnic group wanting out. And I remember when this was happening, there were a lot of people really really cheering this on in the United States as a sign of ethnic independence and what could happen for other parts of the United States, including the South. But also you have, I mean, I would say the deep North is an area that really needs to go. California too. I mean, these are areas that are unlike the rest of America and yet do so much damage to American politics. He says, in our chat, which happened more than a month ago, Buckley argued that the most likely outcome of the 2024 presidential election is a Biden presidency. Due to Biden's advanced age and visible health problems, I hadn't even contemplated that as a possibility. I said this this week uh, on my, or I'm sorry, not this week, last week on the Brian McClanahan show. I've also talked about it a little this week too, with yesterday. I've, I also talked about it on the Tom Woods show last week that I think Biden's going to win in 2024 if he decides to run again. Now, as I'm recording this, he's come out and said he's not so sure about that, but I think he runs again. He's wanted to be president his entire life. He's not going to give it up. So he said, should Buckley's prediction prove true following a second Trump defeat, it feels inevitable that stop the steel Morrison to some form of red state national divorce. Rhetoric already used frequently by Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene and many on the American right. The Libertarian Party has also made national divorce part of their refrain. What does the federal government do under this 21st century Lincoln scenario, I asked Buckley? March troops into seceding red territories, he says without hesitation. Now, how many of these troops, though, would be from these red territories themselves? This is where the U.S. military and what they do in the military with indoctrination becomes so important. The Lincoln myth is behind all of this, as the piece points out. That's one thing that's why I talk about it so much, why I think Republicans should get off that bandwagon why I think that we shouldn't even be promoting this idea of this you know, great Abe, honest Abe, it should just all go away because that Lincoln myth is going to prevent what could really be a peaceful solution to some of the problems that we face in America today, which is massive decentralization. That could be the, the solution. If you put Lincoln as your guy, you can never do that. I talked about it last week. I've talked about it many, many times. If Lincoln is your starting point, the conservative American is bound to fail and fail spectacularly, even in a way that could be dangerous, ultimately. All right. 
I want to say thanks to the listener who sent me this. It's a great piece, um, and it was a nice opportunity to talk about these particular issues. See you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. (laughs) 